Welcome to the Prodigal Catholic Podcast. Today's interview is with Stephanie Gray Connors about her most recent book, Conceived by Science, Thinking Carefully and Compassionately About Infertility and In Vitro Fertilization. If you're interested in learning about the Catholic stance on in vitro fertilization, Stephanie Gray Connors is the person to talk to. Her book is the one to read. And in this interview, we're going to get right into IVF, talk about the dangers of the IVF industry, the reason why IVF doesn't solve the pain of infertility, and alternatives to IVF, as long as with a message of hope for those who have already pursued IVF. So if you're interested in learning more about a Catholic position on IVF, stay tuned. I hope you really enjoy the interview. God bless. So Stephanie, just to kickstart us, uh, for those who are kind of uncertain about what IVF is, can you just give a, a brief definition of what actually is IVF and why should we care? Yeah, great question. So IVF stands for in vitro fertilization and in vitro is Latin for in glass. And so it's the start of a new human being fertilization uh, instead of in the woman's body happening in glass in a lab. So for that to occur, uh, sperm has to be obtained from a man, typically through masturbation. Uh, then eggs are retrieved from a woman by, you know, scientists, specialists, people who work in the reproductive technology industry. And then a scientist takes the sperm and the egg sample, puts them together in a Petri dish. Sometimes the whole collection of sperm goes in. Sometimes it is the scientist himself who takes one sperm and becomes the determiner of who the child will be because then they pick one egg and, and kind of insert the sperm into the egg to force fertilization to happen. Uh, either way, whether it's many sperm or just one that's selected, it happens in a dish. And then a few days later, some of the embryos that are then created may be implanted into the womb of the biological mother or a surrogate. And we should care because this involves human beings and it can harm significantly uh, to the point of death for some uh, of the youngest among us of preborn children. And it also impacts the born as well as the preborn. So we'll unpack how throughout this discussion, but this is why we certainly need to care because it impacts our, our fellow human beings. Yeah, what, what would be your guess for the amount of um, people living today that are in vitro and all the amount of people that are, that are frozen? Um, mm. So the amount of people, I guess, walking on this earth and the amount of people that are frozen in the lab, what's, what's your guess based upon your research? Yes, so I have that stat in my book. I, off the top of my head, I think I, I found that it was around at least 10 million that have been brought to birth around the world. And for every child that is born as a result of IVF, many more typically were conceived. And of those ones that were conceived, some uh, are killed through scientific experimentation. Some are disposed of right away because they aren't uh, deemed to be genetically fit. Some die naturally by not uh, sustaining throughout the pregnancy. And some are frozen, as you indicated. Um, and the plan in that situation is that the parents would go back to have implantations later on into the future. Sometimes that happens, sometimes that doesn't. So some estimates say that in the United States alone, there are possibly up to a million preborn children that are currently alive, but in a frozen state in freezers and therefore not allowed to continue their development. Well, uh, this has got to cost a lot of money. 
Yes, very good point, Father. So it costs a lot of money in a couple ways. The, the most obvious one is if you're going to pursue IVF, it's very expensive to go through the multiple procedures, the drug regimen, the injections that have to occur. Um, then there's also the expense of the ma maintenance of the freezer, you know, so some clinics will expect the parents to pay monthly or annual fees for them to keep the children frozen. But this can go on for years to the point that sometimes clinics will then call parents and be like, uh, are you going to pay for your children to continue to be frozen, although they might call them embryos instead. Mm -hmm. And then there's a whole other element of this, which we could also unpack, which is that sometimes the pursuit of IVF involves surrogacy, where you essentially contract out a woman who won't raise the child to be involved in gestating the child that you've created in a lab so that the baby will ultimately be inserted in the surrogate's body as opposed to the biological mother's body. And then once the baby is born, the expectation is the surrogate would hand the baby over to the biological parents. And in that situation, surrogates themselves can be paid uh, up to $60,000 or more just to essentially rent out their body for the duration of the pregnancy. So this brings up the whole thing. Uh, you, you have this term in your book and it sort of leaped out at me, you know, as I read the entire thing. And that is, and it may not be what people are thinking about, but it's really um, something that I think needs to be unpacked here. And that is the commodification of the human person that we have in a free society, we recognize or for any democracy to exist, you have to have the right to private property, for example, we have I have the right to own things. I'm not a religious, um, yeah, but as a secular priest, as a lay person, you have the right to own your home and so on and so on. But when you get into paying for a child, there's issues there that somebody wants a child so bad that they're almost willing to use any means to achieve the end and and then at the same time they're paying for a human person can you uh, unpack that for our listeners sure that's one of the the main points i make in the book is we really need to be concerned about the commodification of the human person and the way i try to raise that point is to ask the question what makes slavery wrong because everyone listening to this would agree slavery is wrong but if we pause and ask ourselves why it's because the human person is treated as an object instead of the subject that they actually are and when we treat a human person as an object such as through slavery that creates a situation where the slave owner is acting as though they're superior whereas the slave is treated as though they're inferior no longer an equal but an imbalance in the relationship. And then the party that's deemed to be inferior is mistreated, um, harmed, and sometimes even killed. And so if we can agree with that point and why slavery is wrong in that context, then if we look then at IVF, we see the buying and selling of human parts and human persons as is the has historically and even presently with human trafficking is the case with slavery, the treatment of the pre-born child as with the slave, as though they are a commodity, as an object. And so if they don't meet certain standards, they can be disposed of. That's why often if the pre-born child doesn't fit a certain genetic standard, then they aren't even inserted. They won't even be frozen. They'll just be disposed of right away. So yeah, there is this sense that as with, let's say you buy a television set, if it's not got a good screen, you return it and expect your money back. There's this attitude, if I'm going to invest all this money 
in sperm selling, egg selling, sperm buying, egg buying, embryo buying, embryo selling, then I expect a good product. And so if I don't get a good product in the end, what does it lead to? There's selective reduction abortions. There is direct killing before there's even the insertion. Um, there's the, you know, one of the things in terms of this commodification mindset, one of the things I read was, as we know, with the, the last couple of years of COVID, there was actually a a clinic in one of the American states, I believe it was Arizona, but I, again, I mentioned this in my book, where they are advertising to men to become sperm sellers using COVID as motivation, saying, you know, your income might be down as a result of COVID-19. Well, we have an offer for you if you sign up to be a sperm seller, although they use the term sperm donor, but because they're going to compensate you, that's not really an accurate term. So I refer to them as sperm sellers. If you sign up to be a sperm seller, you can make an extra thousand dollars a month. And if you sign up one of your friends, then you could get kickback for getting them into the system. So yeah, the, the problem is human beings are not television sets. We're not objects, we're subjects. And so we shouldn't be treated the, the same way that, that objects are. Uh, a lot of parents today, they, they have to look at whether they want to bring a child forth in terms of economic factors. Like Vancouver, we're in a very, um, very expensive place to live. And so some parents that struggle with infertility, uh, they're making a really big sacrifice actually to pay for something like IVF. And they have this deep need or deep desire to have a life and there's no other options uh, to kind of speak into that particular uh, issue. How, how do you speak kind of compassionately to that struggle? That it really comes, they're, they're really doing it out of place of love and uh, kind of almost desperation for something that is so good that they really want to fulfill. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that point up, Father, because that's one of the, the key messages I actually wanted to bring out in my book is that the inability to have a child is a very heavy cross. One of the first commands, the first command actually God gave us was to be fruitful and multiply. And so when you find your beloved and, and you vow to spend the rest of your life with that person and you love them, you want to see them reproduce. Do you want to see the goodness of them in the next generation? And, mm -hmm. and you desire to have offspring with that person. So that's very normal. It's ordered. And for most people, that is how God planned things. So therefore, to not be able to achieve that normal, good, ordered uh, result of, of your loving relationship, that of a, a child, is, is heartbreaking. And so I start the book with various stories of friends of mine who were willing to let me interview them for my book and share what their experiences have been like of not ever being able to conceive or going many years without conceptions um, or having multiple miscarriages before, if ever, they conceived. And I, I share these variety of stories so that any reader who has a similar experience can feel understood and, and know that this is a legitimate pain. And then the point I try to make that touches on a point uh, Father Hamilton just said in his, his previous comment is indicating the, the ends doesn't justify the means. And so the point that I want to draw out here is that the desire for a child is good. The end result of a child is good. But if the means we use to get that child is not ethical, then it's unethical and we shouldn't pursue it. And an obvious example would be if you desire a child, you get a child. And then I say, 
But guess what? The way this person got the child was kidnapping. And we'd all say, okay, I get their desire for a child. The child itself is a good, but whoa, if you kidnapped, that's unethical. An unethical means to achieve that end. And so the point then with pursuit of IVF is the desire for a child is good. If you have a child at the end of the day, they're made in God's image. They also have a soul, like someone conceived through sexual intimacy. But if the means was creation in a lab at the hands of a scientist, not the fruit of the sexual act, where they are essentially manufactured into existence, this is where, where we begin to, to have problems. And so to not minimize the cross, but then to say, just as we may not kidnap, we may not pursue IVF, but there are alternatives. And that's one of the other things, and again, we can unpack this in this conversation, but I really wanted to highlight that there are other ways to try to achieve pregnancy that are sometimes even more successful than IVF itself. Hmm. To many people who may not understand the importance of, or the, well, the critical need for conceptions to take place in the normal way by marital intercourse. Um, why is that so important? I mean, it's a given in this circle, as it were. And I don't mean just the three of us. I mean, perhaps in a, a Catholic awareness of things, but people who are not really aware of like, why is it so important that it be done through the normal, quote unquote, normal act of marital intimacy, sexual intercourse? Why can't it be done? Why can't the, the, uh, the issue like of light, what we call in, in Catholic terminology, uh, life and love be separated or the procreative in this unitive dimension. Why can't it be separated? Mm, great question. So from a faith-based perspective, I would say because <laughs> God ordained it that way that other people that are made in his image besides the man and woman, the very power to create someone who has the image of someone greater than themselves, right? So we're human, we're inferior to God, but we have his image in us. So that's a very powerful uh, ability to make someone else, to be involved in the making of someone else who bears the image of someone who's greater than you, who's got the image of God, the divine, even though you yourself are creature and not creator. And so God ordained it so that we would be coming into existence as the fruit of a relationship as opposed to being manufactured, because objects are manufactured. If we get back to my earlier point, um, objects are the type of things that are made, they're manufactured, uh, but humans being subjects should come into existence differently. And when you come into existence through sexual intimacy, um, there is a, what I describe in my book is a both a hands-on and a hands-off aspect to, to new life. And by that, I mean, when a couple, they might say, you know, if they, if they know the woman's fertility and obviously the man is always fertile and there's only a few days a month, the woman is fertile. So if they kind of time sexual intimacy around that fertility, they might use the phrase, let's make a baby tonight. But in reality, they have no guarantee that they will make a baby. If, if they have sexual intimacy, they don't know if the woman at that moment has yet released her egg. It's possible, I often joke that, <laughs> that I wanna write a book called I Got Pregnant Doing the Dishes. And by that, I mean, a couple could have sex on a, a Tuesday night, 
but the woman not have an egg released yet, but the, the sperm is still alive in her body. So that Wednesday morning when her husband's at work and she's doing the dishes, she might suddenly ovulate. She doesn't going to feel it, but the egg is suddenly released in her body. And because the sperm are alive in her body, it's at that moment that you actually have fertilization or sperm egg fusion. And so you have new life beginning, but not being forced into existence the way you do in the lab. The other thing is with IVF is the child comes into existence at the hands of a stranger who's not part of the covenantal relationship between the husband and wife. And when you enter into a marriage, you're promising to be exclusively in a relationship with that other party. And God made it so that the one intimate aspect that you're not to do with anyone else except that person is sexual intimacy. And at the height of sexual intimacy and the orgasm of the man is the possibility of new life as the seed is being brought forth is the possibility of new life coming into existence. And that with IVF is essentially being contracted out to someone who's not a part of the covenantal relationship. What should be coming about at the height of sexual intimacy and privacy between the husband and wife is being handed over to a stranger and they're told, take the sperm, take this egg, uh, make a baby. And instead of science unleashing life, love is supposed to unleash life. And the very physical expression of the love between the husband and wife is what's supposed to be open to the possibility of life coming into being possibly. We still have no guarantee if that egg will ever be released, which sperm, if an egg is there, would actually end up fertilizing the egg. But the point is, there is a, a receptivity to whether life is going to come to be, as opposed to IVF, where you're, you're not only forcing someone into existence, but you're making sex entirely unnecessary. Uh, you, you never need to have sex occur at all for a child to come to be through IVF. And you also have, one of the points I make in my book, is a total separation of what should involve full communion. So just as, you know, the Trinity is a communion of persons, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, marriage is used throughout the scriptures, as you both well know, but for the sake of the audience, is used throughout the scriptures to provide an analogy to God's love, a, a spousal relationship, a full give of a giving, a full receiving, and then new life coming forth. So the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And that should be like the husband, the wife, and, and the new life of the child. And so sex requires... Uh, and life from sex is a communion of persons. First of all, the man and woman have to come together in a communion of persons. And when that new life comes to be, even if the husband and wife aren't together, the baby is in a communion of persons with the mother coming into existence beneath her heart. Whereas with IVF, you have a separation of persons. The, the husband typically, as I said, masturbates. So he's off on his own, uh, potentially even getting sexually aroused um, with pornography. So then we're, 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 there's a whole other commodification aspect of that. So you've got that aspect. Then the woman goes by herself to get her eggs retrieved. Could the husband join her? Yes. But his presence is not necessary for the extraction of the eggs to occur. So again, you have division, separation of the relationship. Then when the baby first comes into existence, it's in a glass dish separated from the mother and the father at the hands of a stranger who's not a part of that marital relationship. So IVF on every level involves division of relationship and mm. sex and fertilization involves a communion of persons. Mm. Yeah, beautiful. Just say, yeah, I really appreciate that kind of way to dive deeper into it. I, I was wondering as you were sharing just 
has anyone tried to draw parallels between the 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 conception of of Christ um, with as though like there was a third party involved almost, and how is there any parallels between that and IVF? Like rather than by science, it was it was somewhat of a third party miracle. Um, do Christians try to justify IVF through looking at more miraculous cases in the Bible and then saying that this is just a modern adaptation of it? Have you heard any of that? Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. I actually spoke at an evangelical conference on this topic before I had written mm. my book. So when I was kind of in the developmental stage of my content and I was testing it in all kinds of contexts, including presentations, and I made this point about the importance of sexual intimacy and this communion of persons being the conduit for the creation of new life. And I got an email afterwards from a very unhappy audience member. And I think because in some way he had been connected to pursuit of IVF. And he said to me, look, you're trying to claim sex is necessary, but God himself hasn't made sex necessary because Jesus was created without sex as were Adam and Eve. So your point is not relevant or not accurate. Mm. And so then I really had to reflect on that and think, oh my goodness, that's a good point. You know, what is my response? Mm. And upon reflection and study and prayer, I realized, well, hold on. In the case of Adam, Eve, and Jesus, God himself was bringing those individuals into existence. He wasn't enlisting the marital relationship to be the means through which life were come, would come into be. So with Adam, there were, there were no humans before. So, so God doesn't have sex. So therefore God isn't going to use sex to create Adam. Adam needed Eve. So again, to create Eve, he's not going to, to use sex. And then um, he didn't use sex to, to bring himself into the world in the form of his son, Jesus, because there would have been questioning of how could this really be God if his father is Joseph, his biological father. So the very fact that there was no biological father is getting across the point that this is the son of God. This is man, this is God himself rather. And there's no question that he could have been conceived uh, the way everyone else is conceived. So by, mm -hmm. by Mary's virginity, it gets across a crystal clear message that this was a God created at the, the you know, uh, human being, because Jesus was human, but also, mm. also fully God. Uh, but barring those exceptions, when it comes to God enlisting us to mm. be fruitful and multiply, uh, he has given us the relationship of marriage to be the one in which we should bring new life. And therefore, it's only in marriage that we're allowed to enter into sexual intimacy, which is how he designed uh, offspring to come to be. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I see, I see how, yeah, so God ordained that, that sex and marriage would be the ordinary way by which human life is brought forth, but God is not bound to the ordinary. He can have extraordinary means and it's very 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 rare just kind of same thing in the catholic church like we would we would say clearly that the sacraments are the ordinary way that god himself ordained by which we are saved obviously you look at the good thief on the cross there's exceptions to the ways that god set up for us to 
um, achieve salvation through Christ. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely see how there's a consistency in, in what God set up for the ways for us to, to have things like uh, new life come forth. You know, and, in, and related to that, uh, another point that comes to mind, which which I make in the book, is if we think of the passage in the scriptures of uh, Jesus turning over the tables in the temple, um, Jesus is outraged because he sees his father's house being turned into a marketplace. And his father's house was to be a place of prayer, a place of worship. It had a very specific purpose, mm. which was for that which is sacred, mysterious, uh, supernatural, and it was being treated and used in a way that was not consistent with its nature. Mm. And so Jesus cried out, stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Mm. Well, in that passage, we, we then see Jesus talking about, you know, tear this temple down and in three days I'll rebuild it. And everyone was confused because they're like, we've seen this, you know, it's taken years and years and years for this temple to be built. What do you mean you can rebuild it in three days? And then what he was getting at was that he is the new temple. Uh, he is the dwelling place of God. He is God. Um, and therefore, um, not only is, is Jesus referring to himself as the temple, but even St. Paul talks about how we are temples of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, I think we can take from that passage this idea that as Jesus said about the physical temple, stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Since we now come to the realization that we are temples of the Holy Spirit, we shouldn't be turning our temples, our bodies into a marketplace. And so what IVF does when you take the creation of life outside of sexual intimacy and barring these very rare three-time you know exceptions that God himself uses to create life but he doesn't do it in, in a commodification way in a manufactured way um excluding those that that IVF really involves turning the human body in and the human person into a marketplace there is selection what color hair even what color eyes um what if, if you're going to have a sperm seller what is their education background? If you're going to have an egg seller, uh, does she go to Harvard? Is she in medical school? Um, th this idea that, that we can create a human being to our specifications. Now, does everyone do it that way? No, they don't. So I, I know it's possible for some people to say, well, I don't care if my egg seller is from Harvard or whatever. But the point is the very nature of the industry is that it turns the temple into a marketplace mm. and to use Jesus's words, stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Mm. And I bear the image of the father. You do, you do, we all do. And so we can't turn this house into a marketplace. So, yeah. It's also the interesting idea from a Christian point of view. Um, this isn't really in accord with the natural law, but which might, I don't know if you've developed arguments, may, you may have mentioned some, you know, that come from the natural law for non-believers, but uh, masculinity and femininity would not exist unless they existed within the Godhead. So, yeah, we don't say God is, uh, you know, essentially male or female, although God is, God has identified himself as father for reasons I won't go into. And we can't change that, by the way, because God, God has revealed that about the first person, the second person, and the third person being the Holy Spirit. But in the image of his own self, 
he has created masculinity and femininity in the man and woman. So it's a communion of persons in the Trinity, but it's also a communion of persons within his creation, within his uh, sentient creation. So uh, it uh, once once that is superseded, we attempt to supersede. Basically, when we do not follow the doctor's instructions, we tend to go off the rails. And, and, and absolutely, Father, and, and we see that again, and an individual might look at their own pursuit of IVF and say, well, I wouldn't hire a surrogate, or, you know, I wouldn't genetically screen out the unfit embryos, and so on and so forth. But when you look at the IVF industry and dig into it, overall, it is a very dark and, and messy industry, the number of embryos that, that are created. Um, and and destroyed the um, the also the preying on poor women. I mean, you could go onto YouTube as I did and look at documentaries of poor women in India who hire themselves out as surrogates because they're so desperate for money, and then they leave their own families and they go live in a house of surrogates where it's just rows of beds of women who are gestating rich foreigners' babies for them. And uh, then these women are often given C-sections because they also often are, are implanted with multiples. And so typically you would do more likely than not a C-section for a twin pregnancy rather than, than a singleton. But then you're doing surgery on these poor women, which is going to have uh, risks if they get pregnant with their own biological children in the future. Um, of course, there's many women we know who have C-sections and have more children, uh, but it's still, uh, uh, there's a greater risk, there's greater complications for subsequent pregnancies and factor in the environment these poor women will go back to, uh, their ability to access good C-sections in future for their own pregnancies if they previously had one, uh, the fact that they're leaving their other children. And then when these babies are born, they're ripped out of their wombs and then handed over to the surrogate, to not to the surrogates, to the, to the biological parents, or at least the people that contracted the pregnancy, they may have even have no biological relationship whatsoever to the child. Um, and, and you see these women laying on the bed being sutured up after a C-section, not even holding the child that they have bonded with for nine months. I mean, it is so twisted and so dark. And is it always like that? No, it's not. But to, to touch on what, what you were saying there, Father, is it, once you start this, it, it really goes against the nature of how the human person ought to be treated, which is to be received as the fruit of love, not um, forced into existence because of a demand. Um, the desire for a child is good, but we have no right to a child. Just as the desire for a spouse is good, but, but we have no right to a spouse. And that's one of the points I make in the book with the analogy of men in China who long for wives. Yeah. And you've had decades of a one-child policy where um, a country that prefers male children and can only have one baby for, for several decades uh, opted to um, abort female babies or do infanticide on female infants so that decades later you have this massive male-female imbalance where there's I think 35 million more men than women in China. So there's millions of men who want wives who will never get wives the desire for a wife is good. Uh, most people, most men will get married. Um, but in this case, for some of these men, they can't find wives and they may not in their desire for a wife and their difficulty of finding one, 
They may not claim a right to a life, but sadly some are. And I, one of the points I make in my book is that human trafficking is now rampant in China because women are being kidnapped and forced into marriages they don't consent to, all because some men had a good desire for a wife, but chose an immoral means to achieve that good desire, namely human trafficking. And in the same way, mm. the desire for a child is good, but as we can't claim a right to a spouse, we can't claim a right to a child. They, they must come as the fruit of, of sexual intimacy. I might have to uh, edit this question out, but I've heard how the demonic kind of reversal of, um, of the institution of the Eucharist is abortion, where it's like, this is my body. And maybe with um, euthanasia, you could talk about, um, you know, Mary being assumed up into heaven that there's like a someone chose for for her final period to exist here. Um, there could be a parallel there. Is there any parallel between IVF then and the conception of Christ that like there's some type of a demonic influence there? Do you, are you aware of? Have any parallels in that sense of the real evil that's being um, infiltrated through this industry? Well, certainly, I think, you know, if you look at the example of Christ in the Eucharist, uh, the message, both with the words of Christ and the actions of Christ are, this is my body given for you. It's a laying down of one's life for the good of the other, for the good of all. Uh, and abortion, and I would say you could, could parallel then with IVF, would be the flip side of that. This is your body given for me. And mm. although, again, the person who desperately longs for a child and pursues IVF might not be thinking of it this way. So this is where we want to draw a difference between what someone is aware of and what their actions communicate, whether they're aware of it or not. Mm -hmm. But the actions of IVF are basically saying, this is your body given for me, instead of the Christ message of this is my body given for you. And, and this is your body given for me is manifested through IVF in all kinds of ways. The pursuit of the sperm seller, the pursuit of the egg seller, this is your body given for me. The pursuit of a surrogate, this is your body given for me. Even the pursuit of the embryo, because often you have 10 or 15 embryos that are created, but only a couple that might ever be implanted. So let's say you have 15 embryos created and two implanted and two frozen. Uh, see if I do my math right, that leaves 11 embryos that in some way will be killed, whether they'll be killed right away, whether they'll be donated to science. So you're killing some bodies. This is your body given for me in order to create this other body. And then even the two embryos that might be in the freezer, you might never come back for them. You might think you will, but what if you suddenly need a hysterectomy? Then you, you have no uterus for which to go back for those embryos. So again, I think it's important to be sensitive to the fact that the desire for a child is good. And oftentimes those who have pursued IVF haven't thought through what IVF says. But as with theology of the body, we talk about our bodies speak a language. And so we don't always have to put words out. Our body um, that's why Judas's kiss, here we are on, on the, the eve, where here we are on Holy Thursday, the eve of Good Friday. And what does Judas do on this night? He kisses Christ. What is a kiss? It's supposed to be this, this beautiful gesture 
of affection, of, of, the, of the beloved, of the kin, of, of love. And so Jesus, uh, Judas communicates that, but he doesn't mean it, right? So he uses his body to communicate one thing, but his intention is, is not that at all. It's not love. It's not affection. It is betrayal. And so we can do things with our body, which are lies um, and are distortions. And so no analogy is perfect, but the point I'm trying to get across is that as with what Judas did, the body's communicating something, although in his case, it was communicating a lie. Mm -hmm. With IVF, you're, even if you're not putting words to it, even if your heart isn't aware of, of some ill intentions or even ill effects, the treatment of preborn children, the way they're treated in IVF, the treatment of surrogates, the way they're treated in IVF and so forth, uh, this is communicating something and it's communicating that which we shouldn't say or mean about the human person. Mm -hmm. I would just like to circle back on something because we're, we are starting the Triduum, which you know, for our listeners, that's Holy Thursday, Mass of the Lord's Supper, Good Friday, and Easter Vigil. And you mentioned the cross, um, and we assume a lot of people know what the cross is. I think a lot of people confuse the cross with um, something that's just suffering in my life. Uh, and even that in and of itself has to be kind of demarcated or just, you know, distinctions have to be made. Can you explain to people what is the cross, Stephanie? Mm. Well, I feel like you and Father Richard would be far better. I know. Far better than me. Oh, I'm asking you intentionally because you've dealt with a lot of, you've dealt with a lot of women who really suffer a lot. Couples, not just women, but couples who suffer a lot. And you know, sometimes when people say to me, you know, this is my cross, I say, no, actually, that's you bringing it down on yourself. Don't call that the cross. That's not the cross. You know, so don't think it's just poor me. Uh, and this is really important for us because we can become sort of un perhaps unintentional but our own self-immolated martyrs and that's not the cross of jesus okay so i've handed off to you now yeah, well i'm gonna say what comes to mind but i'm so gonna Absolutely. welcome your, <laughs> your, commentary, to your commentary afterwards but obviously the cross is suffering the cross is brutal i mean if, if you read what is it uh, catherine of emmerich you know, in her descriptions uh, of the the crucifixion and 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 the beatings, and I mean, we can't even fathom uh, how brutal and agonizing the cross was. So there's that level of just torture and agony. But why did Jesus go through that? Um, because of what we call redemptive suffering, that the cross, the crucifixion, would lead to the resurrection. That through Adam and Eve, and then all of us choosing sin, we, we have brought sin into the world. It separated our relationship with Christ. And God had said, look, if, if you do this, you will die. And Adam and Eve ate, ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So, so God had to follow through in his word, but then he loved so much. He wanted to prevent this eternal separation from continuing on through death. And so he said, well, death will be the consequence, but I will take it on for you. I'll, I'll take it on me. And I will follow through on my word, there will be death, but I will take that death on and I will rise to new life. And if you repent and believe that I am your savior, then my suffering will bring about your redemption. And so at least with what you've said, Father, what comes to my mind is that 
you know, the brutal, what can be agonizing suffering for a couple that long to have a child. I, I have a friend right now who um, is in her early thirties and has just been diagnosed with early menopause. Mm. And she is devastated because the only child she conceived shortly after her marriage, um, uh, she miscarried. And so mm. they have not been able to get pregnant. And now knowing she's in early menopause, I mean, it's basically a closed book. She will not have biological children. She messaged me. She's like, I want to support you. I want to read your book, but I can't right now. It is so personally painful for me. Um, and what I did was I said, hey, oh, she said, but here's a way you can help me. She said, do you have any friends who've had infertility that I could talk with? Now, as I mentioned earlier, I've interviewed a bunch of those friends for my book. I said, yes, mm -hmm. I do. And I actually texted each of those friends and I described my friend's situation. I said, can I connect with you? And immediately all these women who also know that pain, who've had mm -hmm. miscarriages, uh, some of them who've never conceived, um, and some of them have now gone through menopause and never will conceive, immediately respond and said, yes, I will pray for her. Yes, I want to talk to her, give her my cell phone, give her my email, I'm happy to speak right away. And they turned their suffering into redemptive suffering, because now they're able to serve and minister and help this young woman because of a pain they know so intimately. And so when we suffer, it's brutal in the moment, but in the future, there becomes an opportunity where through our cross, we experience the resurrection where what we've learned and what we've come to know can somehow be a blessing to others. I mean, in my own small way, I've, I've gone through that recently. Um, my baby's eight months old. And um, when we first had her, you know, we planned to, to breastfeed and I had one heck of a time. I mean, talk about suffering. I, I remember at three in the morning, one morning being attached to a, a pump because I couldn't get my own baby to latch and sobbing as I was tethered to a machine and not my own child thinking I was starving my daughter to death. And how would I feed my baby? And, you know, of course we were supplementing with formula and stuff, but I remember my husband and I just being like, God, this, this very natural thing, which is literally necessary for a child to live. I mean, before formula, babies would have died without food or a wet nurse. Mm -hmm. Why is this so difficult? And literally in the last week, I have a friend who just had a baby and uh, she's having difficulty breastfeeding. So what was I able to do? Leave my baby with my husband, get in the car, drive 30 minutes, go to her house and help her with her baby. And I was so determined, as was my husband, that we helped this new mom because we knew that suffering. We knew that pain. And so just as someone who knows infertility can experience a redemptive suffering in that they will then turn it into some good and they will help mm -hmm. others through that pain. Um, there's, there's an opportunity there for good to come from the suffering. It never makes the suffering good. It never makes infertility good. Infertility is still uh, a problem that we should try to solve. And again, I hope we'll have a chance to talk about how to do that without IVF. Um, but regardless of whether it gets solved on this earth, there's an opportunity to draw good from it and, and bring resurrection out of this, this crucifixion. You could only have said that from a textbook. <laughs> you said it so much better. Thank you. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> Stephanie, just to uh, close things off, do you want to just mention a couple alternatives and then also for those who have already gone through IVF, uh, who are who are grieving now the awareness of, of the wrong that they did, just, just a message to end us to those people as well. Sure, absolutely. So 
one of the things I did in my book is not only told the stories of people who struggled with infertility, but the good news stories of people who sought alternatives to IVF and successfully achieved a pregnancy. Um, now, one of the points I do make is that that's not everyone's story. And so I'm brutally honest and I do then share stories of people who never conceived, but how they accepted that and what good they brought out of that. So there's some stories in there like that. Uh, but it's important for people to know that whereas IVF replaces the sexual act and makes sex unnecessary, it's possible to do interventions that aid the sexual act in ultimately achieving life. So for example, if a woman discovers she's not ovulating, no eggs are being released, it's ethical for her to get a prescription where she takes a drug orally or has injections done that causes her um, ovary to release an egg or two. And so by releasing one or two eggs, when she has sex, it's now possible that she could conceive new life. Maybe the problem with a woman is not that she can't release an egg, she is, but she has blocked fallopian tubes. Well, another ethical intervention is to do a surgery. So you unblock the fallopian tube so that once the woman has mm. sex, sperm can travel through the tube, egg can come down, fertilization can happen in the tube. Mm. Um, uh, there's something, a common condition is PCOS that a lot of women have that can lead to infertility. And so some people say, well, then do IVF to the individual with PCOS. And I share a story of a friend of mine who had a surgery called ovarian wedge resection, where a section of the ovary was cut out, which had a type of leathery skin that was preventing the eggs from breaking through. And as a result of the wedge resection, um, the eggs then were being released. And again, once she had sexual intimacy with her husband, a year later, this couple conceived and have since had two other children. And so this is all in the realm of what's called restorative reproductive medicine. Whereas IVF overlooks the underlying problem and how to fix it, restorative reproductive medicine finds out what the underlying problem is and then uses surgery or medicine to address the underlying problem. And I can give even my own example, my, my first pregnancy that, that I was so overjoyed to have, my daughter Lele, um, very sadly, my husband and I miscarried. And I remember saying to God when I uh, thought I could be pregnant, I said, God, I really want to be pregnant, but I never want a miscarriage. So I'd rather never get pregnant than have a miscarriage. Mm. And then I got mm. pregnant and had a miscarriage. And I was like, God, weren't you listening? <laughs> weren't you listening to me? Mm. But then I realized, well, who am I to make the demands of God? And mm. um, I realized that even in losing this little baby I only had for six weeks, that that baby made me a mother. And again, in redemptive suffering and talking about my miscarriage and being very open about it, I've had so many women reach out to me and say, I never named my baby, but maybe I will now because you naming Lele made me think, okay, I can just pray over a name, whether you know it's a boy or a girl or, or, or whatever the case may be. So my point is in miscarrying that first child, when I got pregnant again, my concern was perhaps I miscarried because I was low on progesterone. And some women can't get pregnant if they're low on progesterone. Other women can't sustain a pregnancy if they're low on progesterone. So I had my blood tested. Sure enough, I was low. I almost lost my second baby. And because of restorative reproductive medicine, I found a doctor who basically prescribed progesterone, which I took until the 23rd week of pregnancy. And so my little girl is eight months and alive and happy and well, uh, because I had restorative reproductive medicine, because I had something which aided the sustaining of my baby's life because my body was incapable of doing that which it should have. 
And for some people that's needed even before they get pregnant. I had enough progesterone to get pregnant, but not to keep that baby in there without, without help. So all of that to say, if, if someone needs help to search, you know, restorative reproductive medicine, contact loveunleasheslife.com and we'll send that info. And as for people who've already pursued it, I mean, it's like anyone who has a child, maybe even outside of marriage, not IVF, but outside of wedlock, they had a one night stand, or maybe they, they love the person they're with, but not married to them. And they had a baby. Um, wherever there's new life, uh, there is life made in God's image. And there is someone willed by God. But it doesn't mean he wills the way we chose that life to come to be. So the life itself, if it's there, should be celebrated. Uh, but if the way we chose to create that life was not how God ordained, then we confess. That's what Easter is all about. It's Jesus dying for our sins. If we didn't have sin, what would be the point of calling him a savior? To be saved from something means you, there was a deficit. There was something we need to be saved from. So we take our sin to the cross. We take our sin to the confession, uh, to confessional. And, and we receive as we confess, as we repent, we receive the mercy of God. And we ask him to, to make all things new. As we're told in Revelation, behold, I make all things new. And regardless of how we come to be, for the child who might be listening, who's an adult perhaps, or a teenager or yeah, whoever, um, but was conceived that way to know, regardless of how we came to be, if we came to be, then we are willed by God. And so that's true for the child conceived by science. That's true for the child conceived by lust. That's true for the child conceived in a loving relationship of marriage. Um, there's not equality in how someone has come to be in those three scenarios. But there's all, always equality with who has come to be. And so we need to separate the end result, again, from the means. And so we're not condemning the, the child who came to be, but we're saying moving forward, we can't control the past, but here we are in the present who have control over the future. Moving forward, what's the next right step? And so taking this information and saying, okay, if my past was wrong, I can't undo it, but I can repent. And now I can go forward with a whole other perspective and try to have that redemptive mm -hmm. suffering and transform even our sin in, into bringing good, good from it. Oh, happy fault. That's what we're going to hear in the next 24 hours. Yes. Oh, happy fault. Amen. Amen. Unnecessary sin of Adam. <laughs> yeah. You want to close this off father with a prayer? <clears throat> father, son, and the Holy spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this blessing, this time with Stephanie. Pray and thank you for <clears throat> being able to discuss this very difficult topic of in vitro fertilization by husband or donor. We pray that you would anoint this conversation and touch and reach out to those who have been affected by this, those who need formation so that they can avoid this those who have children through IVF, that they may truly be thankful to you, their creator, but also recognize that it was a wrong way in which they, their children have come about. We pray that you would continue to bless Stephanie and her husband and her new child, <clears throat> watch over them and protect them and guide them and bless her ministry as she reaches out to so many people, <clears throat> touch their hearts, bring healing to their lives. And we place all of this trustingly in the hands of our Blessed Mother who will stand at the foot of the cross. And although her own, her own heart was breaking, she trusted totally in you, Heavenly Father. And we ask this <coughs> through Jesus, your Son, Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. <clears throat>